You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Well, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's go to 1 John together. 1 John chapter 3. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. And if you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for us His people. So listen carefully to these words recorded by John long ago. 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We're continuing in this study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we come today to this part of 1st John that is most explicit about this subject of spiritual warfare. Now, the Bible is replete with language of warfare. Let me just give you a couple of examples by way of introduction. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. Warfare if I've ever heard of it. The armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Or as Peter puts it in his first letter, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And we've been talking in 1 John about how can we know authentic Christianity when we see it? You know, what does real deal Christianity look like? Or let's make it personal. How do I know that I am the real deal? How do I know that I am an authentic follower of Jesus? Well, one of the ways we know is engagement in this spiritual war, fighting the good fight of the faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our denomination's statement of faith, puts it this way. Every believer... Every believer is engaged in a continual and irreconcilable war. A continual and irreconcilable war. Or as the uh, 19th century Englishman, J.C. Ryle, put it, and man, look at that beard, would you? You know, come on, I heard it, yeah, amen, right? When you're a beard owner, it's much like being a dog owner. You know, like when you're a dog owner, you always are like, oh, how cute is that dog? You're always admiring other people's dogs. When you're a beard owner, you do the same thing. You admire other people's beards. It's just the way it works. What a beard. Sometimes I quote only people with beards. But here's the way J.C. Ryle puts it, and this is important. Listen, the true Christian is called to be a soldier, a soldier, and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He is not meant to live a life of religious ease, inactivity, and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze along the way to heaven 
He must fight. He must fight. Against whom? Who is the enemy? Ryle goes on to say that we as Christians have not one, not two, but three undying foes. Three chief enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to know something about these enemies. Knowing your enemy is an important strategy. It prepares us for the battlefield. It gives us the advantage on the battlefield. Let me give you a fictional example to help make the real life point. Think all the way back with me to 1990 and that Tom Clancy novel turned film, The Hunt for Red October. Anybody know this one? We know it's going to be a great movie before we've even seen it because it has Darth Vader and James Bond in it. It's got to be good. In The Hunt for Red October, Sean Connery plays a, a Russian captain, Marco Ramius, I think is his name. And if you remember the story, he defects. He defects to the U.S. with his officers and the latest Russian technology. But there's a, a really suspenseful scene in the movie. Ramius has defected. He's on board a U.S. sub, and a Russian sub fires a torpedo at them. You remember this scene? The torpedo is coming right at the U.S. sub, and Ramius, totally nonsensically to the American captain, Ramius gives orders to turn directly into the path of the impending torpedo. And the American captain says, wait, you're going to kill us all. Ramius is resolute, though. He knows what he's doing. Turn directly into the path of the torpedo and jack it up to high speed. He does so. And you can just see them all holding their breath. They're thinking, this man's going to kill us all. And then comes the countdown. Three, two, one. But there's no impact. The torpedo hits the American sub and it shatters. Why? Because it never had time to arm itself. See, Ramius knew. He knew the Russians' technology. He knew exactly how long it would take the torpedo to arm itself. He knew that by turning into the path and upping the speed, he would eliminate the ability for that torpedo to harm them. No explosion. Combat tactics. He knew his enemy. He knew his enemy. We need to know something of our enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll see all three in this passage in 1 John chapter 3. But we're going to take them in reverse order, beginning with enemy number one, the devil. Start with me here towards the end of our passage, and we're going to work backwards. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the first point to make about this first enemy, the devil, is he is real. He is real. Modern minds tend to dismiss this idea of the devil as antiquated. If we picture the devil at all, how do we picture him? Well, we picture him as like a, a man with a goatee, right, and a pitchfork, and he's got on a tight red suit, and he's just this laughable character that we don't really take seriously at all. Of course, this is one of the devil's ploys, this is one of his devices. He wants us to laugh. He wants us to doubt his existence. 
And those words from another well-known movie from the 90s, The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. He wants us to doubt. He wants us to think of him as laughable. Oh, but we should heed the proverb of Middle Earth. As Bilbo says, never laugh at live dragons. The devil is real. Just because you don't see him physically doesn't mean he's not real. Now, we don't know everything about the devil. Shouldn't surprise us. The Bible is addressed to human beings, not spiritual beings. So it shouldn't surprise us that we don't know everything there is to know on this subject. But we do know enough. We know that the devil was created as a spiritual being. He is a creature of the Almighty God. Originally, he was good because originally all things were good. At some point before Genesis 3, before the fall of mankind in the garden, the devil rebelled. He turned away from God. He now has an entourage, a vast army of demons or fallen angels that follow him. And this army of darkness has one goal, to draw people away from the God who is light. Now why? Why does the devil do this? What's his ultimate goal? In the Gospels, we read about a time when the devil appeared to Jesus to tempt him. You remember the story in the Gospels? And we can deduce from the third and final temptation that the devil directs at Jesus, we can conclude that the devil's ultimate goal is he wants to be the object of the world's worship. He craves the attention and the affection that belongs to the Creator God. This is what he's after. In the Bible, the devil is described in different ways. In the very beginning of the biblical story, he's described as that seductive serpent. At the end of the Bible, he's described as the lie-breathing dragon. But understand that these are not wanted posters. In other words, these are not images that are intended to tell us what to look for or how the devil looks. They're images that tell us something about how he behaves, how he acts, his dark arts. He is the seductive serpent. He is the lie-breathing dragon. He deceives. He deceives us. That's his primary method. He wants us to believe his lies. And he's been telling these lies from the very beginning of time. For us as Christians, we have no reason to fear the devil because as John will tell us later in this letter, he who is within us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. We have the power of God's Spirit within us and that means that the devil and his dark army, they cannot control you, believer. They can't do it. They can hinder you and they can deceive you and distract you, but they can't possess or control you. You have the Spirit of God within you. You belong to Jesus, and Jesus is the serpent crusher, the dragon slayer. Look at what John says here. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible teaches us that the cross of Jesus Christ was decisive. This is critical. The cross was decisive. There, Jesus' death and his coming to life again, it defeats 
the dragon. It defeats the devil, though he has not yet been destroyed. So the devil is defeated, but he still has the ability to influence. The cross is like the bridge in the Mines of Moria. Fellowship of the Ring, if you've read the book or if you've seen the movie, I want you to picture a bridge. The bridge in the Mines of Moria. The Fellowship, the good guys, if you don't know the story, are being led across this bridge by Gandalf, the leader. And there, Gandalf has to stand alone and face a Balrog, this giant, dreadful beast from the ancient world. And they stand on a stone bridge, just Gandalf and the Balrog. Gandalf looks at him. He takes his staff and he smashes it down on the stone bridge. And at that point, the bridge collapses and the Balrog falls to the dark abyss below. At that moment, the Balrog is defeated, though not yet destroyed. Because as he falls, his whip catches the foot of Gandalf and drags him off the bridge into the darkness with him. Similarly, similarly, the cross has defeated the devil. He's going down. As we speak, even now he is going down. But he wants to take as many people with him as possible. He wants to incite as much rebellion as possible. He wants to deceive and distract as many believers as possible. Defeated but not yet destroyed. But we know the end of the story. Believers, we know the end of the biblical story. When Jesus returns, he will destroy all darkness, all evil. There will be no more suffering, no more death. That is our hope. That's what we long for. The victory is certain. You see what this means? It means that, believers, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. The victory is certain. It belongs to us because we belong to God, to Jesus Christ, and yet the battle is real. This enemy is real. Enemy number one, the devil. But there's more. The second enemy... And there is no neutral ground. As we shift from the first to the second enemy, we must understand this. There is no neutral ground. There are no bystanders. Look again here at what I read earlier. Verse 10. John says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So John sees battlefield earth, and he sees only two types of people. No neutral ground, no bystanders. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. How do I know which one I am? Faith that has transformed my life. That's what John says here. Righteousness. Practicing righteousness. Loving my brothers, my sisters. That's how I know I'm a child of God. A faith in Jesus Christ that has transformed my life. What we do reveals who we are. Regardless of who we say we are. Keep that in mind as we look now at the second enemy. Enemy number two is the flesh. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The Bible often uses the term flesh, though John doesn't use it in this passage, but the idea is there. It's the idea of our sinful desires. That's what flesh means, our sinful desires. Now, he first gives us a definition of sin. Very clearly, he calls it lawlessness. 
all sin is lawlessness. Now, to be lawless is not merely to break the law. It's to hate the very idea of law. To be lawless is to crave autonomy, self-rule, over divine authority, God's rule. John wants us to see that sin is serious because all sin, no matter how small it might seem to us, all sin is rebellion against the loving and life-giving reign of God. Throughout Scripture, we have a series of metaphors that are used to help us understand just how serious our sin is. Three of the most prominent ones are these. The first one is the royal legal metaphor, where God is pictured as the sovereign king and the just judge, and we have broken his law. We have gone our own way. We have rejected him. We shake our fists in his face and we dare him to do something about it. There's a second metaphor. The second metaphor is the familial metaphor where God is pictured as a generous father. So you see, sin, it's not just breaking the king's law. It's breaking the father's heart. There's an intimate relationship we have with God, and we have fractured that fellowship. We've severed that relationship. We've turned away from the generous Father who loves us. We've rejected His good gifts, and ultimately, we've rejected the loving Father Himself. There's one more. The most intimate of all the metaphors, the marital metaphor, where God is pictured as the loving and loyal spouse to whom we have been unfaithful. See, if you don't understand these metaphors, you'll never understand why sin is so serious. You and I are rebels, we are prodigal children, we are cheaters. And this is why Jesus came. This is why he came. It's what John says next. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Now before, John told us one of the reasons that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil has no power over us. He does not control us. And now... He says one of the reasons Jesus came is to take away sins. Now, he can't mean by this, he can't mean take away the very presence of sin because he's already told us that we can't think of ourselves as sinless. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 8? If you think of yourself as being without sin, you're deceiving yourself, he said. So he can't mean that Jesus came to take away the very presence of sin. What he means is Jesus took away the penalty for our sin. We don't have to pay for our sins because Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. He bore the penalty for our sins. And then in the very next verse, he tells us that Jesus has also dealt with the power of sin. Not just the penalty, but also the power. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. 
No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. What's he saying here? He's saying that to know the gospel, to believe the gospel, it's not only to be forgiven. It is that, but it's more. Forgiveness, being sent out of the courtroom, not guilty. Yes, it is all of that. It's justification, but it's also transformation. Jesus makes us new. From the inside out, he gives us a new heart with new desires. We now desire to serve the king, to live for our Lord. We now have the power to resist sin. Now, does sin remain? Yeah. We still have these sinful desires that flare up from time to time. Sin remains present within us. But now, we belong to Jesus, and that means we have the ability to resist our sinful desires. We can fight against the flesh, this second great enemy. So there are the first two. The devil, defeated, but not yet destroyed, still active. And the flesh, Jesus has dealt with the penalty for our sin. He's dealt with the power of sin. But sin remains present. We will have to fight it. And there's one more enemy. The last one that we also find in this passage is the world. Verse 1, working all the way back to the beginning of the passage. Now see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now look, John is reminding us of who we are. Can't lose sight of that as we talk about these different enemies. You've got to remember who you are, believer. You are a child of God. You are chosen and cherished by God himself, the creator of the universe, and nothing will ever change that. On your best day and on your worst day, God loves you. You need to hear that today. You need to feel it and live it. That's who you are, and that's whose you are. And then John tells us where we live. We live in the world. We are children of God living in the world. And children of God who live in the world means the world does not know us, does not recognize us. The world will find us strange. The world will seek to change us. The world will want us to conform to it. Now remember what John means by world. Remember the passage we studied last week when he told us not to love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world, he says in chapter 2, verse 15. By world, he doesn't mean creation. Creation is good. It was created by God. By world, he doesn't mean the people of the world in need of redemption. God the Father sent his Son to save the people of the world. So what does he mean? By world, he means the evil system orchestrated by the evil one, the devil. Or restated, the world is the web of influencers and influences that seek to lure us away 
from the God who is light. And how does the world work? It stirs up our desires. It stirs up the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And here's what I want you to see in all this. If the world is that evil system orchestrated by the evil one, the devil, and if the world works on us by stirring up our desires, then don't you see there how the three enemies that we're talking about, our adversaries, they are allies. They work together. See, I'm afraid that many of us have underestimated the attack. We're not ready for it. Because we fail to see that these adversaries are allies. Look at how it all works together. The devil is the one who, with his, his entourage, plants deceptive ideas. They've been doing it from the very beginning. The flesh... That's us. These ideas, they stir up our desires for certain evils. And in the world, the world makes these evils appear, well, normal. Can't you see how this is at work all around us? This scheme, this system, we've underestimated the attack. Knowing our enemy means seeing each piece of this, but also how it all fits together. The devil is the mastermind, the author of deception. He's been at this for a long time. And you know what? He knows our flesh. He has an inside man. It's my sinful heart and yours. My unstable heart and yours. This is the devil at work. That he has a plan, a scheme. We've underestimated the attack because we look in front of us and we don't see a man in a tight red suit with a beard and a pitchfork. We don't see a serpent. We don't see a dragon. But friends, he's there. The mastermind behind it all with an inside man and with a wide array of influences all around us trying to convince us that evil is normal. So here's the way I think we need to close today. I think it's right for us as we shift into a time of communion to search our own hearts. We need to see all of this and that means seeing our own weaknesses and being honest about them. I want us to spend some time in prayer, but then as you go home today, if you're married, I want you to talk to your spouse. Schedule some time to sit down and talk together about your weaknesses and your weakest moments. And if you're not married, talk to a close, believing friend. Pray this morning that the Lord would give you the ability to see your weaknesses. That the Lord would give you the ability to see how the world is drawing you in, convincing you that Satan's lies are true, 
convincing you that evil is normal. Let's spend a little time in prayer. I'm going to guide us in a prayer. Father, we do ask for your help. We believe that, Father, you have loved us so much that you sent your Son for us. We belong to you. Your Son came to destroy the works of the devil. Your Son came to take away the penalty for our sins to deal with the power of sin in our lives. But we also know that Satan remains active. The devil is active. And that sin remains in us. And here we are in a world, a world that does not know us, calls us strange says to us be like us we don't want to underestimate our enemies God we ask for your help we ask you to forgive us for the times that we have been deceived that we have failed. We confess our sins to you this morning, God. Belonging to you means that when we sin, we know what to do with our sin. We confess it openly, humbly, trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross. We ask you as well, God, to strengthen us and our families. Protect us from the ways of the world, the desires of the flesh, the snares, the traps of the evil one. Keep us alert to these spiritual realities. not living in fear and at the same time realizing that the fight is real we'll work in our hearts today God we pray search us show us transform us. All for the sake of your son, we pray. Amen. If you're a believer, we invite you to celebrate communion with us this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come to the Lord's table. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Believers, remember the gospel. Remember who you are. And receive the nourishment you need to live for Jesus right now in the midst of this attack.